Thank you, Pastor Luke. Good morning, Conduit. How are you? My name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, we're, uh, we're glad you're here. We were praying for you this morning. Whether or not you know that or not, um, I, I don't believe that you're here on accident this morning. We, have, uh, we spent time praying this week for you. We spent time praying this morning for you, and uh, we continue to trust that the Lord is uh, that the, the Lord's purpose for you here this morning is um, is direct is direct for you. And just uh, come alongside of what Pastor Luke already said in um, in uh, about James and about the Dieter family and uh, the continued the continued call the pastoral continued call to pray the the call of the Holy Spirit upon your life to continue to pray. Um, as you know, James is a, a two-year-old, a two-year-old little boy who we love dearly, and we ho- love the whole Dieter family dearly. Um, who's in Oshai and has been diagnosed with uh, leukemia, and so we are continuing to pray uh, for his healing, with his 100% healing around the clock, without fail, um, knowing that it is the Lord and the Lord alone that heals. And so continue to pray that the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the doctors would be confounded at the miraculous and immediate healing. And I was talking with Bryce a little bit uh, just the other night about how um, it all, like, that there is already a spirit of joy and healing around and about James and the family and the room that is making its way into the hospital staff, asking them questions like, why are you guys so different? Well, it's like, that's like an underhand, you know, like wiffle ball type of, uh, can knock that one out of the park. So we know, we know why things are so different and we're going to continue to play, pray for, um, for James's healing. So please do not give up. And uh, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Uh, he told them a parable so that they would pray and not give up. And then he told them a parable of the persistent widow. And so uh, we, in the same spirit, will continue to pray without giving up. For James's healing, uh, we've been in a sermon series in the book of Romans, and like I said to you a few weeks ago, we initially planned that we would preach in the book of Romans for eight weeks and then move on as Advent came. You know that period of preparation before Christmas, and as we started to preach more and more and get and to study more and more, like we realized, like that's just. It's just not enough time, and we didn't want to. We didn't want to rush through it, and so we're taking a little bit of a slower walk through the Book of Romans. And um, and I, I what I want to do this morning actually is take an even slower walk through the Book of Romans than we were initially anticipating, and look back at like the first four chapters of Romans, which we've essentially preached on already, and say, okay, what what is happening here, and what has what has the Apostle Paul? who wrote this letter to the Roman church, the Roman believers, what, what has he been trying to say here? And why, does it, why, why is it important for us to make sense of what he's saying? Because sometimes in some books of the Bible, for instance, if you were to open up to the very middle of your, uh, the, the very middle of your Bible, you're likely going to hit one of two books, either Psalms, which is the biggest book in the Bible, 150 chapters, or you might hit Proverbs, or you might hit something like Ecclesiastes or something like that. And what you're going to see is that it, it seems like those books kind of like in the middle there, which we call the wisdom books, they exist in, um, for lack of a better term, these kind of like short, rather pithy statements that you can 
that, that aren't necessarily connected to one, one another in a narrative story from chapter to chapter to chapter to chapter, right? So it's not like Psalm 1 is the beginning of the story and then Psalm 150 is the end of the story, right? There's not a continuous narrative other than the goodness of God, you know, running through that. But there are books where there is a kind of a continuous narrative, and there is a kind of a starting point, and there is an ending point, and to, and to lose track of that reality in your mind um, can bring a little bit of like, you, we can kind of lose ourselves in the, in the grand scheme of what's being communicated in a book if we forget that there's a progression of, I guess you could say, argument or a progression of conversation through those books. And the book of Romans is exactly, is, is exactly one of those things is that this is one of the best examples of Paul, of the Apostle Paul, writing a letter. You know, Romans is a, it's a letter. It's not a, it's not a book. We call it a book, but it's actually a letter. Of the Apostle Paul writing a letter and building up, building up to a, a couple kind of like crescendo points where the whole argument builds up, builds up, and then there's this hinge point. And then it builds up and builds up again in another hinge point. And it builds up and builds up again in another hinge point. And he does it several times, like three or four times. Without understanding what Paul, the, like the you know, connect the dots type of picture that Paul is creating here, it can become a little bit, as you get on later in the letter, and be like, well, what are we talking about here again? And why is he talking about this? It seems a little out of place. It seems a little out of context. Okay. So to maintain a little bit of fidelity to the context of what Paul is saying, I want to look at the kind of first section, again, of what Paul says, because I believe it's important. The book of Romans is in the New Testament of your Bible. It's right after the Gospels. So you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? And then you have a book called Acts, which is a historical book of the development of the New Testament church. And then the very next book is Romans. And like I said, it's not really a book. It's more of a letter. It is a letter. Um, and, and Paul, um, as is the case in most of ancient Near Eastern letters, starts off the letter like any letter. I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the grace of God to the church in Rome. Right? And he begins to talk. And one of the things that's interesting about the letter to the Romans is that in the very first 18 verses of the letter of the Romans, Paul just kind of lets the cat out of the bag right there at the beginning to say, this is what this message is all about. This is what it's all about. And so if there was any question whatsoever what the next 16 chapters of this book or this letter is going to be, I want to get, I want to remove all confusion right away. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. Paul says in chapter one of um, the uh, book of Romans, verses 16 and 18, he's like, he says, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been re revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's important to understand this from the outset because it does give a lot of guiding context to the rest of what Paul says. If there is any question, he says to his readers, 
If there, if there is any doubt whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, Paul says, if there is any doubt, doubt, let me unashamedly, without any reservation, without any qualification, without needing to explain it in any way, shape, or form, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation for all who believe. It is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power wrapped up in the gospel is the thing that brings righteousness into the identity and life of every single person who expresses faith in Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other power. There is no other salvation. There is no other message of righteousness. Righteousness has only been revealed from heaven through Jesus Christ, and it can only be received by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the power of God for salvation for all that would believe. And Paul wants to be super, super, super clear on that point. He's like, unless, let's just make sure you know that from the, from the outset. But then in verse 18, Paul begins to take a little bit of a different um, he, he begins to like jump kind of headfirst into the, say, the first step of the argument, right? And if you don't, if you don't know someone very well or if you're writing a letter to them, this is, a, this is a pretty, I don't want to say a bold move by Paul because he always was kind of a bold person as we read from the New Testament writings. But, uh, but what we do see here is that Paul pulls zero punches in how he communicates to the Romans about how he sees the state of the world um, existing in the here and now, and how he sees God responding to what is going on in the world, and then how the world should respond to the way that God is responding to the things that are going on in the world, right? He basically just very clearly lays out the situation as he sees it. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, he says, listen, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's, God's wrath here, he says, is being revealed against wickedness and godlessness in all of the world. Well, what kind of wickedness and godlessness is the kind of the hypothetical question that gets answered? And Paul then goes on to explain, hey, here is what's happening. We have, a, we have a world that is taking the truth of God, what has been, no, been made known about God, what is evident about God, what is clear about God, written all over the fabric of, of creation, that he has eternal power in his divine reality, and they're taking what can be clearly and simply known about God and suppressing it, diminishing it, keeping it low on the low on the truth scale. He says, uh, he says that the uh, wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness, verse 19 in Romans chapter 1, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made, it has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that we are without excuse. 
Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so there was this, there, there was this, uh, that Paul, Paul was explaining like, hey, hey, here's what's, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening, right? That the, that the truth, all that can be known about God, that he has made known about himself in the revealing of both his eternal power and his divine nature, his divine qualities, even the most basic understanding that there is an eternal, powerful God who is divine, that in the wickedness and godlessness of the world, the world seeks to continue to suppress and reject that truth and instead elevate themselves above him through the worship of idols or through the worship of ourselves. And that in response to this suppression of truth, in response to this rejection of truth, in response to um, all, all, all that comes from it, that God, that, that God actually does, that God actually responds to that. How, how does God, how does God reveal his wrath in the midst of or in the presence of wickedness and godlessness in the world? Well, there's two ways that Paul explains that, that God reveals or pours out his wrath upon wickedness and godlessness. There is an eternal way, which is what we normally think of, and what he later explains in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, is that on the coming day of the Lord, that, that the wrath of God has been stored up for those who have been wicked and godless and who have not repented of that, not have their salvation. But there is also, there is also a in the here and now way in which the world experiences the pouring out of God's wrath on wickedness and godlessness. I mean, like, okay, Lord, we hear you, we, we, we see the world, God. And it would be, we'd be hard pressed, we'd be hard pressed to make an argument that the world is not, you know, chin deep in its own wickedness is not chin deep in its own godlessness, in its own darkness, in its own brokenness, in its own hopelessness, in its own rejection of him as sovereign God, in its own like exaltation of the both intellect and place of man, form of humanism. But Lord, what are, what are we, what are, how are you going to address that now? How are you going to address that in the here and now? What are, what is, how are you going to respond to that wickedness and godlessness now? And Paul says in three different ways. He says it three different times. He says the same thing. What happens as God responds to um, the wickedness and godlessness of the world? He says it in verse 24 of chapter 1, in verse 26 of um, chapter 1, and in verse 28 of chapter 1. He says these, these things. He says, therefore, or because of the wickedness and godlessness of the world, therefore, God has given them over in the sinful di- desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They continued to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Then verse 26, he says the same thing again. He says, because of this, God has given them over to their shameful lusts. And then in verse 28, he says the same thing again. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And so in three different, in three different, in, in three different sections, in three different ways, but in saying the same thing, he was like, listen, there is a, there is a way in which God reveals his wrath and pours out his wrath in the midst of wickedness and godlessness being shed abroad in the world. And the way in which we experience the wrath of God in the here and now is that God actually actively, actively removes his restraining grace that keeps us, you, I, the world, from falling headfirst into our sin. It says, it says he actually, he gives them over to the sin that they so eagerly desire and are actually pursuing. No longer does the Lord, no longer does the Lord's restraining grace lay upon their life, which keeps them from falling headfirst into sin. But now he removes that restraining grace and their hearts are darkened and hardened towards the Lord as they fall headfirst into the thing that they have been pursuing all along. Now, Paul leaves no godlessness and no wickedness stone unturned here. It's not like he singles out one form of godlessness, one form of wickedness, one form of sin. Paul, Paul kind of makes, makes the, the comprehensive list here in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 1. If you look at it, it begins kind of in verse 26 and goes all the way through verse um, 32, essentially. He says, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even, the, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for this perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over once again to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, every evil, greed, and depravity. They are full here of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossips and slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And so Paul does not pull, he pulls zero punches here. It's like, it's as if someone stepped up and be like, okay, well, um, yeah, I, I may be wicked and godless in this area, but, it, but I'm not in that area. He's like, oh, no, that's on the list too. That's on the list too. He's like, okay, well, I'm good here, but I'm, I'm good over here. No, no, you don't get it. That's on the list too. 
right? It's like, it's almost like Paul had even fun with alliterating the list, right? They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, right? Envy, deceit, murder, malice, greed, gossip, slandering, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, right? And he just lays out the, the absolute, like, um, one of the most comprehensive one of the most comprehensive descriptions of the way in which wickedness and godlessness produces its own fruit in the world around us. Um, and the, I think the, and not the scary part, but the, I think the, the, the sobering part of that for us should be the way, the way in which the Lord gives us over to the, to the darkness and wickedness of our hearts when we continue to reject the call of his spirit to repent of those things. All the way to the point where it says, Paul says in verse 32 of Romans chapter 1, that there is, there is no longer really any sense of those things being wicked or, God, or, wicked or like godless, but now there is actually a celebration and approval for those who do them. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. So it's like, as we, as we push and as we push and as we push, you know, I... I this is a little bit of an aside, but not really. It's like sometimes I wonder the tremendous destruction that I would have wrought in my life had God's grace not restrained me in the moment of desire for wickedness, godlessness, and sin. You know? That there, that there is very, that there is very obvious a, a, a grace that comes from God that rests upon our lives that restrains us from fully just like, quite honestly, just fully ruining our lives. Continued to restrain, continued to restrain, continued to restrain until in the stubbornness and darkness of our hearts, we both by our action and by our, and by our, um, our, our decisions, we say, Lord, I no longer desire your restraining grace. Allow me to do what it is that I want to do. And the Lord says, he gave them over to the desires of their hearts. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. I mean, brothers and sisters, let us never, let us, let us persevere in the prayer that the, that the restraining grace of God would never be far from our lives so that we would, we would, we would, never, we would never lack the conviction of the Holy Spirit to repent when we're acting in wickedness. Because this is, a, this is a key way that we begin to understand, am I, walking, am, am I walking on this path of wickedness and godlessness that's going to lead to destruction on my life? And the question that I would ask in response to that is, does the conviction of the Holy Spirit that rests upon your life, do, 
Are, are there things in your life that you, that you knew or know are sin and at one time felt a, de- a great deal of conviction over, but now as you have walked longer in that pattern of sin, you don't really feel so convicted about it anymore. I mean, you kind of know, yeah, maybe shouldn't, can't. I shouldn't do that or I should do this. But the conviction that was once upon your heart and mind about that specific thing is now like, it's kind of like just in the background. It's just background noise of life now. I don't really feel it too much anymore because, listen, when we normalize sin and wickedness in our life, when we rationalize sin and wickedness in our life, when the convicting voice of the whole and presence of the Holy Spirit begins to be in the background of our life instead of right in the forefront. Listen, you are on the precipice of the heart being hardened so significantly that God is going to give you over to the, to the sinful desire of your heart, darkening your heart and hardening, hardening it against any further conviction that will lead you to repentance. So the prophet Isaiah says to the people of Israel, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the day of wickedness. Turn to him in repentance. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Paul kind of forecasts what he, I think, he was pretty, a pretty astute cultural man. And I think he knew even what his readers here would be anticipating as they were reading about all these, all of these sinful people. Can you believe all those sinful people out there, church? I mean, thank goodness none of them are in the room right now. We can talk about them, um, right? <laughs> thank goodness we all got it on lockdown, right? Um, uh, and I think Paul was anticipating the same type of idea, same type of like as he was writing to the church in Rome as he was writing to both like Jews and Gentiles in Rome there was this sense of like um, probably anticipated that they would have the same idea well whew, thank goodness we're not like them right? and so in in chapter 2 of Romans Paul was like hey um, we need to have a talk everyone we need to have a talk. Uh, and he says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you, therefore, remember, this is, track the progression. Paul lays out all of the wickedness and godlessness of the world and what happens when we ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that God hardens the heart, okay? And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he opens up with this. He says, you, you, therefore... You have no excuse. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. It says, and then in verse, he goes on to verse 2. Now, that, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So in the first two verses of chapter 2, uh, Paul lays out that there is a type of judgment about the wickedness of the world that comes from you and I, 
that comes from other human beings towards other human beings, and that there is a type of judgment that comes from the, from the wickedness and godlessness of the world that comes from God to the wickedness and godlessness of the world, and they're different. They start from a different place. They originate from a, from a, from a different foundation. Okay? And he says, he says, be very careful, therefore, uh, be very careful. And he, in fact, just says, hey, flat out, don't do it because any judgment that we would level against any other person ever can only be leveled from the foundation of our own hypocrisy. Because somewhere in the big list of chapter one, you find yourself. You sit in that place as well. You, therefore, who pass judgment on someone else, at whatever point you judge the other, you condemn yourself as well. You see, what Paul says here is that we can only judge from a place of hypocrisy. We can only judge someone else from the place of our own hypocrisy. God's judgment comes from a place of truth. And if there is anyone who can or anyone who should or any foundation upon which judgment comes from, it should come from the place of truth of which God owns every inch of that real estate. The only place that we can stand in judgment of one another is in a hypocritical spot because we have done the same things. We exist in the same place. We stand in the same offense to the heart of God. We are among the wicked and the godless. We are no different, Paul says. And what he goes on to say in, um, in the end of Romans chapter 2 is that we will not escape God's judgment of our hypocrisy and hypocritical and, and hypocritical judgment is an active show of contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience that leads to repentance. It says it here, right here in the, in the beginning part of chapter two. It's very important that we see this because this is not just, is this contextual to Paul's argument with the, in the letter to the Romans and the conversation between a Jewish person and a Gentile. Absolutely, it's contextual to that. But lest we think <laughs> that, the, that what is contextual to the Romans is not applicable to us, we stand in dangerous ground if we can't see that application. Because look at what Paul says here. We'll read it one more time. Chapter 2 of Romans 1 through 4, okay? You therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Okay, so we get the two points. Our judgment can only be from the foundation of our own hypocrisy because we do those very same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. All right, well, his judgment of those things is much different than our judgment of those things. God stands in the place of judgment. We stand in the place of hypocrisy. And so then he explains it in verse 3. So you, a mere man, 
when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same types of things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Kind of a rhetorical question here, right? Basically saying, you will not escape God's judgment from standing in the place of hypocritical judgment over other people. You won't escape it. And furthermore, he says this about those who stand in a place of hypocritical judgment over others, is that they actually show contempt for the what? For the riches of his kindness, for his tolerance, and for his patience. Not realizing that God's kindness is what leads people towards repentance. And so when we stand in hypocritical judgment over someone else, we actually are showing contempt, not just to, not just to them, but we're, show, we're showing contempt to the gentle, patient, and kind ways in which God leads people from wickedness into repentance. Like, it's almost like we want to wrestle control away from, the, away from the way in which God leads people back to himself. He's like, hey, Lord, Lord, I don't think you understand this. Let's be a little less gentle, a little less patient, and a little less kind with these wicked and godless sinners. Let's bring them right to their knees, Lord. And, and what Paul is saying is like, you... What don't you get about this, bro? What don't you understand here? You co- you're showing contempt for the patience and kindness and gentleness of the Lord that led you to repentance and now is active to lead others there as well. One of the things that we it may be easy to miss in this is that, is that Paul in, in Romans is he's really, he's, he's really um, addressing this to kind of two, well, he's addressing it to kind of two separate crowds of people here, okay? Um, you see them all written all over the New Testament. It's like the Jew, the Jewish person, right? And then you have this kind of big general catch-all term, the Gentile, right? So you have the Jew, who were um, the, the those who were those who were part of covenant Israel, those who traced their lineage all the way back to Genesis chapter twelve, a descendant of Abraham. Right? They received the law through Moses. They received the covenant of circumcision. Right? Pastor Luke had the had the. I'm so glad that Pastor Luke drew the short straw. I'm preaching about circumcision a few weeks ago. Right? I was hoping to avoid that myself. I did so. Uh, but did a great job on what the nature of circumcision is, right? So we have covenant Jews over here who were descendants of Abraham. They received the promise of God for land and blessing, right? They received the law through Moses. They received the covenant sign of circumcision that let the world know that they, that they were the covenant people of God, right? And in this kind of, and what kind of took over, both in the spirit of Israel and the heart of Israel at that time 
was a superiority over Gentile people or anyone who was not a Jew. There was, a, there was kind of a moral or spiritual superiority that they kind of wore as kind of like a cloak. Like, well, we have the law and we have the prophets and we have circumcision and we are children of the covenant. We are God's special people. If you're in our Wednesday Bible study this past week, we talked really deeply about what it, me- what it meant actually to be a part of the covenant people of Israel. And was this, a, was this, was part of being the covenant people of Israel, was it like a, oh, you're special, more special than everyone else? I love you more than everyone else? It, absolutely, it was not that. But that God's covenant initially with the people of Israel was a covenant not of special blessing, but of special responsibility. You will be my people. I will bless you so that you may be a blessing to the nations of the world. Israel became a conduit of God's blessing. You like that right there, right? They became a conduit of God's blessing to the rest of the world, and he gave them these things like the law, the land, circumcision, right, the covenant, in order to set them apart as a holy people on mission to do the work of God in the world. Somehow, somewhere, the covenant of responsibility turned into the covenant of superiority. And now I am a Jew, and I have the law, and we are God's special people. And so he, Paul's really talking about all these sinful Gentiles, couldn't possibly be talking about us because, hey, look, we got the law, we got the circumcision, we got the covenant, we got all these things, and, and we're good, we're good, we're fine. I don't got to worry about anything else here. Well, Pastor Luke preached about in terms of circumcision, which was the outward, um, outward sign of the inward covenant and disposition of the heart that the person had towards God was exactly what Paul talks about here. He was like, hey, look, guys, we are no better. Jews are like, we're the chosen people. We have all of these things. We have the sign of circumcision. We have a special kind of relationship with God. Thank goodness. And what Paul says in response is this, in Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 23, he says this. He's like, now you, um, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are at Dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, uh, because you have the law and the, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor? God, by breaking the law, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What Paul says here is this, essentially, he was like, hey, look, you brag about being superior to the Gentiles because you have the law and you're a teacher of the law, but your hypocrisy is so written all over your life 
that the Gentiles actually blaspheme the name of God because they couldn't possibly take you seriously. Your hypocrisy is so rampant throughout your life that no one would ever believe, despite you having the law, despite you being circumcised, that you actually follow the Lord in your heart. And so he goes on to say, he was like, listen, the Gentile sinner who does not have the law, who is not circumcised, who is not part of the covenant people, is more righteous when they follow the Lord with their heart than the Jewish person who has all of those promises, but just says, I don't need to follow the Lord because I have all of those things. He was like, it is the un- ungodly It is the ungodly Gentile who seeks after the heart of God that is more righteous than the godly Jew who says, I have no need to follow after the heart of God because I have all of the promises of of my forefathers. What what, What does Paul essentially say? You cannot fool the Lord. He sees your heart. You cannot wiggle your way out of the disintegration between the inward place of your heart and the outward expression of your action. The Lord sees it all. You're not fooling him or anyone else. Even the Gentiles know. (laughs) Says that, right? Even the Gentiles can see that and they essentially blaspheme the name of God because of your hypocrisy. So here, um, the question then becomes, the ultimate question then becomes is the, Paul, is the question that Paul seeks to answer in chapter 3, right? He was like, okay, so here's a rhetorical question. Well, who, who's, who's better and more righteous then? Who, who is the righteous one? Is it the, is it the Gentile sinner? Or is it the Jewish sinner? And um, he's like, is, is, there, is there one that's better? Is there one that's better? And what Paul um, essentially says is that, hey, look, listen, um, neither of us are better. Neither of us are better. It is not the, it is not the Jewish person of the promise that it's better. It is not the Gentile person who doesn't have the promise that's better. It's neither of us are better. In fact, that to use a term that kind of vaults us into the future is like that the ground at the foot of the cross is completely flat. <laughs> and we all stand on the same ground. And we all stand in the same place. He says this in Romans chapter 3, verse, verse 9. He says, what shall we then conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what Paul aims to do here is is say essentially this. He was like, listen, in case you feel like you didn't fit into one of the places of wickedness and godlessness, let me make it all clear. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. All of our throats are open graves, Paul says. We are all standing in a place of desperation. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 20, therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. There is nothing that we can do good enough to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Rather, through the law, we just become more and more conscious of our own sin. We have no way whatsoever of being made righteous before God. We only have wickedness. If we are going to be declared righteous or have any righteousness whatsoever, it's not going to be ours and it's going to come from something that it's not going to come from something that we have done. The question there remains then, what is, what is righteousness? This is a word that Paul here begins to use in Romans and that we need to get a hold of, right? What, what is righteousness? If Paul says, hey, look, no one is righteous, not even one, there is, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Well, what does it mean to be righteous? Does it just mean to be good? To be more good than it is to be bad? If that God were make a list of all the good things that we did and God were make a list of all the bad things that we did, that the, that the good list would be longer than the, than the bad list, is that what it means to be righteous? Does it mean to be righteous that we just go to church more than we don't go to church or we're more generous more than, more than when we're greedy or we're just, we just end up doing more good than we do bad? Is that what it means to be righteous? That is not what we believe um, that righteousness is or believes, right? What is, what is righteousness? Well, righteousness is tied closely to this word that we see in Scripture called justification. Both of these are legal terms. They come from, they come from like a, the legal dimension, and they're, they're used to explain a kind of a spiritual condition that we receive through the grace of God. Being righteous or being justified or justification is the legal way of saying the person standing before me has been declared not guilty. I am declared, the judge is declaring them not guilty. What's interesting here is that it is not the judge saying they didn't do anything wrong. That's not what it is. What it actually is, it's, a, it's looking over top of and around and behind what we know about the conduct and declaring them as an identity of who they are 
righteous, not guilty. It's not, okay, you've been really good. You have earned your not guilty. You have earned your justification. It's not it at all. It's a, out of my own choice, I look past the conduct of your life and I place upon you the identity of being not guilty, of being righteous. And what Paul says here, he was like, hey, look, I want you to all know, none of us are that way. None of us are not guilty. None of us are right before the Lord. All of us are, all of us have been made unrighteous, wicked, godly. No one is righteous, not even one. So the natural question that we all have for Paul, and I'm like, Paul, I'm going to stop reading this letter, bro. <laughs> like, this is not like, how about some encouragement here, right? How about like, where's the good news, Paul? Where's the good news of this? But understand, right, that like, there, there is no good news of the gospel without the bad news of our wickedness. There is, no, there is no good news about the future that we have in Jesus Christ if there is no bad news about the state that I stand in before the Lord as guilty. There is no good news. So if Paul is going to be a man that goes forward proclaiming in an unashamed way that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation for all who believe... He better set the foundation of a, hey, look, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ for your salvation because you can't get it on your own. You're not going to earn it on your own. There's no amount of, um, of abiding in the law that's going to get you there. And so this is where Paul, this is the first hinging point in the book of Romans. Chapter 3, verse 21. Things change dramatically here. And he says, therefore, or but now, but now, right? No one is righteous, not even one. No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Okay, so, so we're not getting the righteousness from our own, but there is a righteousness now. From God, he's supplying it, right? That is apart from the law that has been made known to which, look, hey, all of the course of Israelite history, the law and the prophets has been testifying about. This righteousness, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, made not guilty, right? Are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If you... If you ever memorize any scripture ever in all of your life, memorize 
you know, like verse 22 through 24 of Romans chapter 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are now justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now listen, verse 25. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. What is Paul saying there? It's kind of like word soup a little bit, right? Kind of word soup. Let's break it down a little bit and then we'll, we're going to be done, okay? Um. The righteousness of God, right? Let's talk about it this way. How is righteousness, how is right standing in my life achieved? How do I, how, how is my not guilty identity achieved in the presence of God? How do I step out of my guilt because of wickedness and godlessness and be declared not guilty before the one who stands on the basis of truth to judge what I've done and who I am? Right? How does that happen? It doesn't happen because I have been good enough. It doesn't happen because I have worked hard enough. It doesn't happen because somehow I have produced it myself, right? The righteousness of God or the right standing before God has been given to me as a free gift of God's grace through the redemption that was earned for me through the shedding of God's or through the shedding of Jesus' blood. For the atonement of my sins on the cross. That is why Paul said God did this. God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin because of his justice. God doesn't look past the wickedness of my sin. He just takes the punishment of my wickedness and he places it upon Jesus as a mark of his justice. My sin does not go unpunished. My sin actually, there is one who experiences punishment for my sin. There is one who experiences punishment for my wickedness and my godlessness. It was God who presented Jesus as the punishment for my sin. In Romans chapter 3 verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. And through faith in his blood, the righteousness that was Jesus, that belonged to Jesus came to me, and the punishment that belonged to me went to Jesus. Jesus took my place. I took his place. How, do I, how am I declared righteous before the Lord? I am not. Jesus is declared righteous 
by the Lord. And then Jesus takes his righteousness and gives it to me, Paul says, by faith. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To who? To all who believe. There is no difference, Paul says. For every single one of us has fallen short of God's glory and are justified declared not guilty freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. There is nothing good in me. There is nothing good in me except Jesus. Period. I have no righteousness of my own. Right? The word says that, the, that, the, that my righteousness are like, is like filthy rags. Right? I have no righteousness of my own. There is nothing good in me except Jesus who I have received through faith. And it is only through the the it is only through the free gift of Jesus Christ that I am now made righteous and justified before the Lord. Not of my own doing, not because of my adherence to some moral code or ethical code or spiritual code, not because I've done more right than I've done more than I've done wrong, not because I come to church every single Sunday, not because I'm super generous, not because I don't kick the dog, not because I don't yell at my kids, right? That any righteousness or good that I have within me is because that I have trusted that, yes, my life is full of wickedness and godlessness. I cannot solve this problem on my own. And a judge that stands upon the truth looks down upon me in judgment and says, the only righteousness that you could ever receive is the white righteousness that I provide for you through the gift of my son who I have offered as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. The decision is yours. That's what Paul says. This is, the first, this is the first three chapters of the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. Chapter 4, which we could talk about, essentially uses um, the, the patriarch of the Jewish nation as an example. As an example that there is only one way to receive the righteousness of God, and that is through faith. He talks about Abraham, who is, guess what? lived a long, 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 long time before Jesus, right? But he says that Abraham held an unwavering belief in the promise of God, was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised, and this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Because he trusted in the faith he trusted by faith in the one who offered righteousness rather than 
trusting in himself to earn righteousness through his good works. Next week, we have this, uh, this other shifting or hinging point in the book, Romans chapter 5. Paul spent the first four chapters saying, hey, this is, this is your condition. This is, how, this is how the sacrifice of Jesus Christ changes your condition. Okay, now, now that you have been justified, now that you have been declared righteous, now that you have been declared not guilty, what now? How does that change the trajectory of the life that you live now? What changes therefore now? Well, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have all kinds of other things, too. We've gained access into the grace that we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only rejoice in the good things, but we have so much hope in the glory of God in our lives after being justified through faith that we will rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that our sufferings are not an end, they are not an end in of themselves, but they have the purpose of producing something in us that God would not do otherwise. Character, hope, faith, perseverance. They're developing something in us. I'm preaching the sermon from next week. I gotta stop. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to. I'm about to sweat through my shirt again. Listen, church. I don't know how many, how many different ways we can say it <laughs> other than to say any bit of hope that we have for a, for a life lived before God, our creator, being, as being declared righteous and not guilty, any and every hope that we have is found in Jesus Christ. All the way back to the first chapter of Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I will unashamedly tell you, unashamedly tell you that the gospel is the, go the, gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You will not find salvation in your good works. You will not find salvation in your church attendance. You will not find salvation because your parents were Christian or your spouse is Christian or because you went to church growing up. You're not going to find salvation in me, right? You're not going to find salvation in being a super good person to the neighbors next door or being really generous or giving yourself, um, giving of your resources generously into the kingdom, right? We find, we find salvation eternally through faith in Jesus Christ, period, end of sentence, every day, all day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, Acts chapter 4. It is in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, that you can be declared righteous and not guilty in front of God. And God is calling you this morning to express faith in the sacrifice that he has made of his own son, that your sins may be forgiven and that you may be redeemed and reconciled to the one who has created you and loves you. And so his, the, the, the altar of invitation remains open for that. 
It is not something that you need to respond to only or can only respond to on Sundays in, a, in the time in which you hear some, some dude just talking about it, right? But every time you feel and sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life, you feel deep down in your gut, right? The Lord is calling you unto himself. Do not harden your heart as in the days of rebellion, Isaiah says, but turn to him and repent. One of the beautiful things about the ministry of the church, and I don't just mean the ministry of conduit, but I mean the ministry of the saints, all those who express faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, is that we often have, we have these ordinances or these sacraments where we, um, we demonstrably show and proclaim the, the gospel um, in actual, like, physical things, right? It'd be like, an, it'd be like uh, when you, an, an object lesson for children. Like, we are children in our spirit before the Lord, all right? And the Lord gives us sacraments and ordinances in order to help proclaim in a tactile and tangible way the truth of the gospel shed abroad in life. One of those ordinances that we have is baptism, right? Sacrament of baptism, where we put someone underneath the water and then we bring them up out of the water after they have declared or after they have proclaimed personal faith in Jesus Christ. Because we believe that there is, a, that there is a, a spiritual drama, so to speak, being played out before us. That when they're placed under the water, we are placing them in the grave in unity with Christ. That their sin goes down into the grave and they are brought up out of the water in glorious resurrection and also in unity with Christ to new life. It's not without, it's not without its eternal meaning and significance in the heart of that person, but it's also not without significance and meaning for us as we, as we stand before the Lord and witness again the proclamation of the gospel when someone dies to their sin and raised to new life with Christ. But we also have the same thing when we come to the communion table. We have the same proclamation, the same tactile demonstration of the power of the gospel, the tenets of the gospel, where we take the bread and we take the cup and we proclaim over them and through them the broken body of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And then we come forward as both a body but also as individuals in an expression of our own personal faith at the sufficiency of and the perfection of the sacrifice of Jesus to forgive our sins and make us just and right before the Lord. And so it's not a meaningless exercise. It's not a meaningless practice. But also understand that the simple act of taking communion, the simple act of being put under the water of baptism is not the thing that saves us. Right? Because what what did Paul say to the Jews about the nature of circumcision? You can be circumcised on the outside of your body all that you want. It means nothing if your heart is not turned towards the Lord in pursuit of him. Right? And as the same is true here, and the same is true in baptism. 
You can come forward to receive the elements by faith, but the elements save you no more than bread and juice could save you. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who saves us, and it is only through faith in him that we may be made righteous and justified in the sight of God. And so we invite you to the table this morning asking and encouraging you to come in faithful anticipation and expectation of God's delight and forgiveness through his son Jesus over your life. Understanding, of course, right? That is the, that is the condition of our hearts, not merely what we take off the loaf and put into our mouth that changes anything. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Conduit, you are loved. Go in peace and faith in Jesus Christ for the redemption and justification of who you are through his blood. Amen. You are loved. Have a great week.